Pod 102. Thank you so much for putting us in your ears. Absolute joy and honour to be in your lobes this week. Last week, I started a new thing, which is basically each week I'm going to chat. I'm not quite sure how to sort of do it, but it's like one point each week to be like, do you get me? Do you understand? Does that make sense? Do you totally have the same problem? And I'm hoping that you're going to say yes to those questions, by the way. Might be awkward if not. This week's main bugbear is how you value your time, how you cost up your time, how you quote for jobs. Anyone else find that massively challenging? It's so difficult, especially with the work that I do. The same thing for one client can be totally different in cost than it can be for another client, which just doesn't make things easy either. I like a formula like a plan uh so that one has been a serious bugbear for me this week any hints or tips as ever greatly appreciated you can find us at passion pods um quite the inspirer for you this week holly is the founder of raise the roof which is a charity that does actually more things than i can even begin to start telling you about uh, she's also a camera woman as well which you know is no mean feat in it- itself quite frankly so i actually think she might be slightly superhuman just just throwing that in there i think this woman is she's beyond normal powers a rather echoey, because we were in Holly's parents' kitchen, as you do, looking out at their lovely garden. I could get used to that as a studio, I have to be honest. Uh, but yeah, there is a little bit of echo knocking around. But that's by the by, because the main gist of this are the words that come out of her mouth. So, Holly. Right, so Holly, if I was to meet you, how do you describe somebody? If you're out, if you're going to the pub, how do you describe what you do when you meet someone new? Um, I run a registered charity in the UK and Kenya, which works with communities living in poverty to empower their visions for sustainability and development. There's a lot of different areas that we focus on, but currently we have a vocational training school in Kenya. We have a gender programme, um, Raise Her Voice. We have social enterprises um, and a lot of sustainable businesses. Listen, you got that one nailed. <laughs> that was good, straight in. Um, darling, how on earth do you get into doing something like that? Talk us through a bit of your yeah, twist and turns. Yeah. yeah. We've got time, so tell us. Take us back. Because you haven't... Did you start out with this kind of stuff? Has it always been bubbling? No. When I was at school, I was quite academic and I always had quite good grades but I wanted to be a photographer so I went to uni because my school had said that's the best thing for you go and do a history degree usual path yeah yeah dropped out after three months realizing that it wasn't at all what I was wanted to do and I wasn't passionate about what I was doing and that I really wanted to follow the photography career so I dropped out started doing a lot of work experience began working in the tv industry Um, eventually got a job as a camera assistant um, and I got stuck into that and then was on this path and realised that this was kind of it and I was into this big career at 18 and that was going to be me and I just thought there needs to be something else before this. So I decided to take a year out, which at the time was really scary because I thought, oh God, if I leave now, I've just got a name for myself in the freelance world. Which is really hard. Yes, am I ever going to get back in? Yeah. Especially being a girl as well, hate to play the girl card, but it is more difficult um, as much as you don't always like to admit it. It is more of a challenge and I thought, oh goodness, am I ever going to get back in? But I just did it anyway because I had this gut feeling that it was something I needed to do. So I planned a year away and that all went amazingly, had the trip of my life, but there was still something missing. I felt like I'd had this incredible year, but kind of felt like I needed to give something back. 
So I came home. My last stop was New York, and I flew home from New York. Three days later, I hopped on a plane to Kenya. Wow. Flew into Nairobi. No idea with what I was going to do or who I was going to stay with. And yeah, it all kind of started going from there, I guess. Had you mulled over flying away, flying back out there so quickly? This, this idea must have been developing as you were away. Do you know what? I think I knew towards the end of the trip that there was going to be something else. Yeah. But it wasn't until I got home and just thought, oh God, I've got to go again. This. Can't do it. No. So I just literally booked a flight and off I went. Um, had you been to Nairobi on your trips on your trip before? No, I hadn't oh my gosh, touched anywhere in Africa. So I think, yeah, it was a big unknown. Yeah, it's just so brave. Probably I'm slightly stupid. But... No, but I mean, it's all, you know, I mean, come on, so charity off the back of it. I don't think it's that yeah. bad. So from there, you land in Nairobi. Continue from there. Um, I met this lady, a Kenyan lady, who introduced me to a few charities working with children and young people, um, began volunteering, worked everywhere from schools, special needs schools, hospitals, babies' homes. Um, Have you done any volunteering here before? Um, no, I guess I've done things at school. Nothing no, sort of you know what? no one's ever asked me that question. I'm thinking about it. I don't know that I ever did but that's so amazing it just must like you say this trusting of your gut but it's just so funny breaking it down yeah like where that comes from do you know I was really close to my nan growing up and she would always take me to her elderly friends and we'd always I'd always spend a lot of my summer with her and we'd always go around to her friends and visit them because they were housebound or couldn't cook and things like that it's like maybe that's where it came from um well maybe it's just a point in your life where you're looking for something different and you've got an itch that you need to scratch and for whatever reason yeah that was where it was. No one's ever asked me that. I never thought about it. To be honest, it's a bit of a weird one looking back because now that I've been in the development kind of sector for the last five years, I now know that what I was part of is something that's not necessarily looked up upon at the moment. And there's a lot of negative press around volunteerism and young people going on these gap years and being able to access children that are already vulnerable so I think there is a part of me that also looks back at what I did and sees that I was part of the problem um but hopefully I've managed to change that around and turn it on its head and bring something quite positive out of what probably wasn't at the start it's yeah well it opens the door to what's now gone on to become your Mm -hmm. bits now so then take us through to that bit yeah so um I was doing all this volunteering and I eventually met this lady who had her own children's home which was incredible it was a beautiful home And a lot of the children she worked with were living on a dump site, so she took me there. And what I saw was 250 people plus living on a dump site, children running around barefoot, um, homes just made out of tarpaulin and cardboard boxes, smells like you've never experienced, um, plastic burning, children just running around in ragged clothes with no shoes on their feet. Hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things until you ever experience it. It's not something that you can ever picture or imagine. It doesn't matter what you've seen on the TV or in an advert. It's just something that touches every sense in your body and you can't not do something about it. Um, So I began getting to know the people that lived there. And one of the biggest problems they had was that during the rainy season, which is pretty torrential, a lot of their homes were washing away because they were made of cardboard and tarpaulin. So what they really wanted at this point was corrugated iron so that they could put roofs on all of the homes. Right. Um, And at this point, I was 21 um, and kind of decided that that was a small little project that I could take on. It was going to cost about £500. So I sort of said, okay, leave it with me. I'll go home, see what I can do. I'll tell my friends, run a little fundraising event. Um, So I came back to London 
told people what I'd experienced um, and we held a little fundraiser in Hyde Park we did a little sports day which I don't think is technically allowed (laughs) don't tell the Rangers Um, and then we raised a bit of money I think we actually raised about a thousand pounds so I went back to Kenya and raised the roof so that's actually where the original name came from Um, my little sister came up with that that's great I actually remember the day Um, so yeah I went back to Kenya raised the roof and realised that we had a bit of money left over. So started putting children into school, setting up businesses for single mothers, um, paying medical bills for children that were sick. All with that chunk of cash. Yeah, all with that money because fortunately it goes quite a long way there. And then I was working on a slum and I met this little boy that again was like something you'd seen on you know the Comic Relief adverts and programs every year and he was so thin like I could put my fingers wrap my fingers around his legs he was really sick his blue like royal blue uniform just drowned him um and he was in desperate need of medical care because he was HIV positive and wasn't going to make it if he wasn't given the access to the medical care that he needed. So I began working with him and his mum. And over the next kind of year or so, we got him back to health and he was doing really well and getting all the medication he needed, going to specialist HIV hospitals. Um, But unfortunately, on one trip whilst I was there, he took a turn for the worse and he didn't make it. Um, And that that was really hard for me. I think something that at such a young age just changed me so fundamentally that... It just became a lifelong ambition and drive and passion to want to do something about the things that I'd experienced and about what he went through and to do what I could to make sure that that didn't happen again because to me it was an unnecessary death and I wanted to do something to change that. It's like a commitment almost within you sort of solidifies, I imagine, at a moment like that. I mean, I've never been through anything like it, but I do know with various stages of grief in my life, it's something just absolutely takes hold and you're like, well, that's now different. I'm seeing this just going to be seeing this a little bit differently. I think you just see the world differently. Your whole outlook on life completely changes and that, I guess, redirected the course of my life. And... So I started thinking about what I could do and everyone kept saying to me, you know, start an orphanage, set up a children's home. But there was something that just never sat right with me. I didn't ever... So that's a big task to take on at 21. You know, I'm just thinking of you even there doing the things you were doing maybe with his family. You know, doing that, that's quite a responsibility and how you're doing that sort of... Yeah, Yeah, it's a big undertaking. Yeah, and I didn't... The whole orphanage institutionalization of children never quite sat right with me and I didn't feel like that was the right thing for me and for the children and so when I looked at the situation I began thinking well like why wasn't his mother able to support him like why wasn't she able to get him the medical care that he needed cool sort of backtracking a bit yeah Yeah. seeing a little bit more about where the problems stem from so rather than putting children into care and taking them away from families why not work with the adults that are then having the children and put them in a position where they can actually cater for their own families, put them into school, pay their medical bills when they get sick. So I was introduced to this community called Barut. They were very rural, vast open lands, mud huts, no access to water, no electricity. And what I'd seen was a lot of teenagers that didn't have an income were essentially idle. You'd see the same people just walking the streets all the time. And you began to think, what sort of opportunity was there for them? And I was a similar age at the time, 
and began thinking like if that was me in that situation what would I be doing if you can't afford to go to school you've probably 21 and dropped out of school when you were 12 because your parents couldn't afford to put you into high school like what opportunity was there for you if you're an adult with responsibility what do you do so we began talking to this community and they had all these ideas about a vocational training school and a sports hub and this big community centre um, and it all just started to come together. Ping together and so we formed a partnership, pitched our ideas to the Kenyan government and all of a sudden we had plans to build a vocational training school. The community donated the land to build, the government agreed to endorse it and to supply us with the teachers that we'd need and so... I came back home with the mammoth task of raising the money uh, to build a school. Um, I mean, it's, that is a huge thing. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? When you look back at... Now, looking back, it was probably quite big. But at the time, I think you just... you got to get it done. doesn't matter what you got to do, you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, well, came back home. was really fortunate to have a lot of friends that were really willing to help. Um, and to honestly, people that I hadn't seen for years. There's still a girl now... Uh, my friend Nicola, who has been involved from the start, we went to school together, had lost touch, hadn't seen her for years, and she'd seen a few posts on Facebook and seen what I was up to. She messaged me, and it turns out she was a senior trust fundraiser uh, working for the Samaritans. And she was like, I'd love to help you. Oh my gosh, you're like, like, yes, please. please. <laughs> and it, you know, it wasn't something I knew, I didn't know what I was doing, Absolutely. I wasn't skilled in it, and so I was really Needed grateful yeah. to people that were willing to offer their advice and to help. So yeah, we began raising the money to build the school, we pitched a trust, we ran a big campaign on social media, um, and all of a sudden the school went up, and a year later it was open and had its first 50 students in it. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it, I'm sitting here, I'm just like, you're amazing, you created that with the support, and I know the other networks, but that is your vision that you've now realised, it's just amazing yeah, what you can it was, do. It was, it was a nice moment, but again, I think when you see how vast the problem yeah, is, you, you never feel like it's enough, yeah. um, but it was great that I could see the community empowered by it, because it was essentially their vision that happened to tie in with my ideas yeah, and you could realize yeah and um, together we did it and still now it's so embedded that this is a joint partnership and that you know we're all equal stakeholders in it and um it's a really nice project so we teach fashion and design and agribusiness so we did a load of research and they were deemed as two of the most employable skills in the area and that would help young people start earning an income. Um, so that's what we teach now and then we run uh, sports programmes and we have various sort of additional curriculums. They do debate club and they do environmental studies and things around the actual curriculum. Um, but it's now been in operation for three years. It's the highest ranking vocational training school in the district and oh my gosh we have a 100% pass rate so it's doing really well but it was just because of the foundations we put in at the start you know like the government commitment the community commitment nobody wanted this project to fail everybody wanted it to do the best it could do and so together we all kind of made it happen somehow (laughs) (laughs) can you believe it no, not always. I mean, that is such a responsibility. What, how have you managed that side of stuff? Well, that's where the sustainable element comes in. So that was the one thing I was really passionate about from the start, was that I'd worked with all of these projects, and everything that I'd volunteered at, they were amazing. But at the same time, I thought, if something happens to you, the person running it, what on earth happens to all of those children? Or, you know, what happens to this school? And so from the very start, 
it had a five-year goal of being completely sustainable, Kenyan-managed, Kenyan-sustained by 2018, which isn't far away now. Um, <laughs> so we'd always instilled that in everybody from the start. So fortunately, our partnerships and collaborations with local businesses and um, government ministries has meant that a lot of our operational costs are now covered in Kenya. So operationally, the centre is actually very close to running itself. Um, but what we also did was establish sustainable businesses as part of the curriculum in the school. So the teenagers and young people that are studying agribusiness, we have a chicken project as part of that. So we sell the eggs locally and then once the chickens are no longer laying, we sell off the meat. They grow kale and strawberries and tomatoes. And so we sell all of that locally, which puts money back into the project. Hearing you talk, though, it's like having your, you know, it's, um, what's the word, the sort of the spread of this is so vast. Like, even one of those ideas, you know, how you juggle all of these different things that have developed or have been part of it, it's, it's a many-stringed beast, isn't it? Yeah, and there's more. But I think you get good at juggling hats. Um, you have to. I think you have to be adaptable, you have to be willing to throw your hand at anything and grow with it and work with it and just learn as you go. I mean, the learning curve from 2011 to now is insane. I mean, I never thought I'd know about the different breeds of chickens in Kenya. Like, it's not something I ever thought I'd need to learn about. But, you know, it's just things you've had to learn along the way. And you pull from other people, you know. Like, you know, I don't possess all of this knowledge and all of this skill, but I know people that do. So it, I guess for me it was kind of also about admitting my weaknesses and being able to say, okay, I can't do this. Like, help someone who does know Absolutely. and can do it better than me. Like, I need you. Yeah. So do you want to be part of this as well? And it gave other people an opportunity to be part of it as well. Um, so from that, we've now actually grown a little bit more and we now have an ICT programme. So we teach technology for development to the community because it's very rural, but the surrounding city is growing very fast. So it's kind of encroaching on them very quickly. So we're equipping them all with digital skills. Um, so that opened this year. Um, and one of the other things, our head teacher had realised that every month there was a dropout in our girls. And when she began talking to them and looking at the register records, it timed with their menstrual cycles. And yeah. so all of these girls were missing school. And we realised we'd kind of been failing them in a sense because we hadn't realised one of the most basic major needs that they had, and that was access to sanitary products. And so we'd given them this career opportunity and these skills and taught them to sew, but we hadn't ever given them something as basic, you know, as, as, basic as a sanitary pad. Yeah. Um, but it's such a difficult thing for us to comprehend in the world that we're living in, because that's just something that I didn't even think twice about that. No. Yeah. And nor did I. Um, yeah. And so it wasn't something that had ever been put in front of me. I just hadn't even thought about it and never realised it. Um, so I began working with little small organisations working with women and they had this solution to reusable sanitary pads um, and they brought it to me and said, look, could you make these and find a way for your boys and girls to earn money from making them? And I looked at them and was like, these are great. Um, let's try and do something with these. But as we were doing it, we kind of realised that through some of our partnerships, we could actually scale it a lot more. And rather than our students making them at our centre on a tiny little manual sewing machine we could actually get them mass-produced through one of our partners and actually see a lot more beneficiaries through them. Yeah, bigger scale. Um, but one day we did, um, there was a community activity day at the school and I happened to be there and I was playing with these kids and this little girl jumped up on me and she was in this ragged dress 
And when I was holding her, I realised that she wasn't wearing any underwear. And that, for me, was this light bulb moment of, we're giving all these girls pads, but what do they do if they haven't got any underwear to put the pads into? And I began doing a load of research, and everybody was just making the liners, but there wasn't a solution for the two. And when we began talking to our girls and community members and other organisations, actually, access to underwear was a really big problem. So I kind of just grabbed a pair of my pants and grabbed one of these reusable sanitary pads and took them to my friend that runs one of the largest textiles companies in Kenya and is one of our partners and just said, look, I've got this idea. Is there a way that we can make one unit and just solve this problem? And he looked at me and was like, that's brilliant. Like, let's see what we can do. Um, so there I was taking my bikini bottoms. <laughs> like, so guy, I know, oh my God, the things I do. And it's actually really funny because we've now been working together for the last like year and a half on this or last couple of years. And, you know, when I first started talking about periods and sanitary pads, I'm like, no, that's going to leak. And no, they won't be able to move freely and that. And oh, but what do they do at night when they're bleeding and blah, blah. And now seeing him talking about it is really funny. You're like, yes, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> We got you on our team. Yeah, it's brilliant. So actually, How amazing. through here, um, they're called Betty Industries. We've actually now set it up. Raise Her Voice is now a sustainable enterprise. We've now partnered with USAID, who've actually just distributed 30,000 of them wow. to um, women in Kenya. And we're working wow. on forming partnerships with other large-scale organisations who can get women access to such a basic need that I think is often overlooked and mm. can make such a difference if it's just when your daily life is worrying about how you're going to feed your kids are your kids going to be able to go to school you know are they going to get sick from the water you're feeding them if you can just take away the stress of worrying about your period it's just one less thing that goes into the stress of daily life that occur when you're living in developing communities yeah it's just things that we don't like you know I said before I I just find it so difficult to get your head around it's such a bizarre basic that we take for such basic basic um so as we started working with the girls and i began talking to them a bit more when we initially started it we wanted to call it raise her rights because we thought these girls don't have the basic necessities that they need they don't have but actually when i delved deeper and did a lot of reading and research around it i realized that in theory a lot of our rights are equal not all of them there's still problems with land rights and things like that but generally you know a girl under 18 by law is not allowed to be married but it wasn't her rights that weren't in place it's her voice no one was listening to her um and so in these rural communities where rule of law kind of goes unnoticed and customary law is overarching the law isn't supporting these girls um, and they're being failed by the system and so raise her voice began and we've started doing a lot of research into early enforced marriage and female genitalia circumcision um, and access to the pads and one of the things we've noticed when we looked at our school records over the years was that in the last two years we've lost 12% of our girls to no enforced marriage and when they go, we don't see them again. They disappear off the face of the earth and they get married to rural communities and that's generally the last we see of them and the most connected people in our communities cannot track them down. Mm. And um, there's a lot linked to when you're forced into marriage, the chances are you probably won't return to education. 
you're more likely to have long-term uh, female health implications, obviously less likely to get a job. Um, and so we've begun a community-wide research programme that's looking into that and um, understanding the root causes of it in the hope of implementing a programme that will address some of the root causes. Um, so that's kind of where Raise Her Voice is at right now. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, genuinely. It's mind-blowing. It's getting there. All of this stuff... I mean, you just don't do anything by halves. It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, if I need something done, I know how I'm going to get in touch. It's like, Holly. <laughs> um, so there's two things, or oh, there's loads of things I want to ask you. The first thing, I guess, is how do you make this work financially? You know, maybe now you're obviously in a situation where these things are more established, but just hearing all of these things that you're doing, how are you sustaining yourself? How does this work? Yeah, that's actually a really good question right now because I guess, like, I'm still a camera operator. I went back to work. So from my first trip to Kenya, when I came back home, I had to go back to work because I needed to earn a living. And so I still work as a camera operator, but fortunately the industry is quite flexible um, and I'm able to kind of work part-time and juggle my TV job around the organisation and the team are really understanding of the fact that you know there will be days where I'm on camera for hours and I can't answer an email or someone else is going to have to pick something up for me. But I love that it's so inspiring because you're doing a creative job anyway it's not like you're working in an office and that's sustaining you not that that would be a bad option either but it's very inspiring that you've got a creative career that is supporting a very creative and heart-led endeavor yeah it's just such great evidence tangible evidence that this stuff can work yeah. not easy I'm sure but I'm it must, yeah it's really hard it's a juggling act because at the same time although the worlds are kind of both creative, they're completely polar opposites. Yeah. You know, the TV industry has a lot of money and it's all the, you know, what's deemed to be glamour. But on the flip side of the coin, I'm working in rural communities dealing with, you know, situations where girls are being raped or forced into marriage and living in mud huts. Like, my worlds are completely polar. Do you find that difficult, swapping in between the two? Really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I'm still learning and to also be present like when I'm at work doing my camera work I have to remember that I'm there to do a job and that's what I'm paid to do and I still do enjoy it but I have to remember that you know I can't look negatively on that world because of what you know what I have had access to and you know it's a privilege that I've been able to see the things I've seen and it's amazing that I do I can see outside of the tv world but I have to remember that when I'm there you're I'm there and I'm in it and I have to do that and be that holly with the tv hat on yeah um, challenging yeah it is challenge it is a challenge um but fortunately people are quite supportive and actually most people know what i do now but yeah so that's what supports me financially and then in terms of the organization a lot of our operational costs will be covered through our sustainable endeavors in kenya yeah and then we also have a enterprise that sells hand-woven leather sizal wool Um, beach bags and handbags and that kind of came about because I met this little old man one day and he was selling these bags and what he was doing was working with women throughout Kenya often that were in very vast rural areas where tourists don't go to and these women had these incredible skill and they were weaving these bags and they take weeks to make but because there were no tourists around they had no market for them 
And so what we did was began working with him and these women to sell these bags and give them an opportunity to gain an income, I guess. So now what we do is buy them from them and then all the profits go back into supporting the running of the organisation and projects in Kenya. Yes, yeah, so sort of self-cyclical, you know. I guess that's the whole aim of these sustainable projects that you are talking earlier about the agriculture or whatever. That's the whole idea with these, is that there's yeah. sustainability long-term. Exactly. Yeah. And now that we've been working for, the, for a while, we can sort of say, you know, these styles work and people don't like these ones or, you know, that sold really well, let's make more of them. And As you go. Yeah, kind of go through little Joseph, who's the most beautiful old man you've ever met, and he sends these messages to all these women throughout the country and then they send them down and we go from there. How have you found, as someone who's not been brought up or lived in Kenya, how have you found that cultural? Have you come up against any challenges with that side of stuff? Or I think I've always been really well accepted into the community, probably because I, I listened to them and because I took on board their opinions and what they said and I didn't just charge in and make the decisions that I thought were right for their futures. We spoke them together and they were vastly their decisions that I would then, you know, find a way to action here. Um, and so I think they respected me for that and they... Um, well, obviously, because there's, well, there's, there's proof in the pudding of that because these things have happened. I just yeah. guess it's just an interesting concept from an outside point yeah. of view. Why do we need to rely on us to sort of come in and do it? Yeah. But maybe that's, you know, that's a conversation for another day. I don't no, know. I think you're right. I think there's so much potential lacked into communities that people don't involve in decisions and don't involve in discussions that are about what directly affects them. Mm. Like, I'm not going to that school, so mm. why should I have a say on what courses we teach? Those are their decisions. They know what's employable there. They know what will work. Mm. Um, I don't. You know, often people want to come and volunteer and people are always asking me, you know, can I come and volunteer? And I have to be very honest. And a lot of the time they'll say to me, well, can I come and teach English in the school? And I'm like, are you an English teacher? And very often the answer is no. And in that case, then no, unfortunately, I'm really sorry, but we need to empower our staff and me sending, you know, someone from London that fancies doing a little stint in Kenya... Um, is going to completely undermine our staff, give the wrong impression of what we're about as an organisation and disempower the community. And so although that would probably have a large impact on that person's life, on the person volunteering, it's actually what does it do for the community? And we have to remember that it's about them. We're trying to help them, not us. It's not that we wouldn't take volunteers now. We're just very cautious about how we take them and we'll tailor a programme that works for the community and works for the volunteer but often that we ask people to come with a skill or something that they can offer like what can you contribute it's not about you know taking from the community and it's about working with them and how can we use your skill to benefit the organisation and to lift everybody up. It's the way round that it's focused, the direction of which way the energy's going, isn't it, really? It's exactly. like that needs to be coming from that way, not that way. Exactly. Yeah, the whole point of what you're doing. Yeah. And I know that I might sound hypocritical saying that because I've been that person. I've gone into children's homes and I've played with kids and, you know, I've been part of the problem, but I think being able to step away from it and with a bit of reflection... I can see why that was so wrong. and Also, it's helped you, just hearing you talk, it's helped you build this very strong foundation for what you wanted the projects that you're building or working with people on to be. Has that come, do you think, through time? Because often these things, you don't know until you try. No, and do you know what? If I'm honest, like, I've grown up with it. Like, I've 
had raised the roof since I was 20 and I'm now able to look back at all the mistakes I made and I think that's something that if you ever get into this sort of industry you have to be willing to look at yourself reflectively and from an outsider's point of view and be really honest with yourself and say if I did that again what would I do differently and admit that you were wrong because it's development it's part of it you have to be willing to change and adapt and you know I'm very aware that I was part of the problem and I'm now able to look back at that and hopefully be part of the solution. Oh my gosh, Dal, I think you, you can wave that flag. I hope so. <laughs> I often ask about advice, actually. Is there anything specific, if you were to start again, that you wish you'd been told or what would have been really handy to have up your sleeve when you were doing this? Yeah, I think... Or a few things. Do you I know, know what? I know the cliche is always follow your gut, but I'm the worst at... I know exactly what my gut's saying and then I will find myself doing the opposite. I'm very open to listening to people and what they think, but I think you have to be willing to take on board other people's opinions, but ultimately go with your gut because you're the one that will have to deal with the consequences if it doesn't go right. And also, I think, be ballsy. Like, don't be afraid. Like, if you're that passionate about something and you believe in it so strongly, it won't go wrong in the long term because even if there are those little hurdles along the way you'll work out a solution and you'll find the right way and all of those hurdles you'll learn from and at the end of the day those are what are going to make you have a really strong solid foundation and what's going to make you go further in the long run and some of our biggest mistakes have probably led to some of our biggest successes and I know that sounds so cliche no and at the time if we said it to you like you're like oh my gosh I can't see how this is gonna be yeah and being willing to admit them you know, the that's fact hard that... when it's your own baby, isn't it? Or when you've built this thing like you have. It's really, really hard because you are so attached. Really attached. And everything feels like a personal failure um, if it doesn't work. It's, yeah, you do bear a lot of it on your own shoulders, I guess. You know, it, it is stressful, but it's a stress you want. It's, you know, when you're so embedded in something and so passionate about it, the hard work isn't a chore. It's something you want to do, even if at times... It does make you cry and it does make you want to tear your hair out and it does make you question what you're doing with your whole life. I hear you. Seriously. And, you know, people often say to me, like, when are you going to start looking after yourself? When are you going to do something for you? And I'm like, at this point now in my life, this is kind of becoming something for me as well. And it never set out that way. But I've now actually gone back to do a master's in sustainable development at the same university that I dropped out of 10 years ago. Oh my gosh, literally I want to make the film of your life. <laughs> and you can film it, you got the camera people. But Holly, this is just insane. Yeah, it's a bit strange. It's a bit freaking brilliant, mm, that's what it's it is. A really, I think that's actually how I got in as well, because I don't have an undergraduate degree because I dropped out. And I was starting to apply and obviously I'd have to do it part time. So I was looking and it was like going to be five years. And I was like, oh, there's no way I can't do this. And then I looked at the masters and it just said like, people with relevant experience will be considered. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to apply. Um, And what I found is that actually this will probably support me long term now. And when I can no longer lift heavy cameras anymore, I'll have an option for later in life. And it was never something that... I thought about or you know starting Razor Roof was never a personal endeavour it was just wanting to do something about a situation I saw but and look what can come from that for yeah God's it's kind sake. of become my whole life and so it's a very strange journey but yeah an awesome one you can say that again um, about a million times 
What a story, eh? As you can probably tell, I found chatting to Holly just so inspiring. I just think a young woman her age achieving all of those things, it's more than most of us do in our entire lifetimes. It's just so awesome. And yeah, raise the roof, spread the word. Uh, thank you so much to Holly for chatting to us. Next, we've got a couple of potentials. I'm still working on them, to be honest. There's a couple of options. So I can't really give you too much more information than that, other than the fact you know the drill. It'll be more of that kind of stuff. Is that enough of a selling point for you? If not, there's plenty more in the archive. Get stuck into those. Passionpods.co.uk. Uh, find us on Twitter at Passionpods, as I said before. Always love hearing from you. We're on the look for anyone else that wants to chat, by the way. We've got loads up our sleeve, but always just on the hunt and the scour. If anyone that you've come across you think we need to be talking to, let us know. Maybe it's you. That's absolutely fine. Don't worry. We won't give you minus points for recommending yourself. Huge fat thanks as ever for listening and we will see you next week. 